Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Hawk's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Friday, April 15th, and today we are talking to Teddy Schleifer about why Mackenzie Scott is triggering the once ascendant world of the right-wing donor class. Conservatives used to run the dark money universe. How worried are they about billionaire progressives now taking their throne? And later on, we're going to hear from Bill Cohan on Elon Musk's latest power move, his offer to buy Twitter outright. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Friday, everybody. I am joined today on The Powers That Be by Teddy Schleifer up in the Bay. Uh, Teddy, tax day approaches. Have you finished your taxes yet? I, I uh, At the time I am taping this, I have not, <laughs> but uh, I'm really going to hit it hard this weekend. I actually kind of enjoy doing my taxes. Is that a weird thing to say? I find the- uh, Super weird. I find the, the like the, it orders your life in a certain way. It really makes you reflect uh, on the past year. It's like a metronome, like your birthday. You know, <laughs> how much money did you make over the last year? So looking forward to that R&R. Uh, yeah, that's super weird. Um, I procrastinate every year and I, as of this taping, I'm still not done. But speaking of taxes, uh, you are our resident expert here at Puck on super rich and the way they spend their money for quote unquote philanthropy when they're really spending it for political reasons. You have a piece up on Puck right now about Mackenzie Scott, but not specifically her, the sort of larger problem that people like Mackenzie Scott pose for conservatives. Can you explain why that is? So for a long time, the wealthiest people in society were either conservative, politically disengaged, you know, center right, or just like not really threats in the way that conservatives see the world. Over the last two decades, I would say the wealthy have gotten increasingly political. Uh, Mackenzie Scott has probably become uh, the most famous over the last three years for her kind of spray and pray approach to, to big charitable gifts. But it really dates back to Bill Gates, to some extent to George Soros and kind of his involvement in politics at the end of the 1990s, early 2000s. As a result, in part because of the fact that lots of wealthy people were conservative, Conservatives love the rich. I mean, Mitt Romney ran for president in 2012, and a large part of his appeal was, hey, I'm a rich guy. I'm successful. And there's been sort of this agiographic or at least honorific attitude toward the wealthy from the right for a long time. Now things are, are changing, and I have sort of been tracking this backlash to philanthropy mostly on the left but we're beginning to see the backlash of philanthropy on the right. And it's for very different reasons. It's not because conservatives hate rich people because they still believe in free market economics, you know, they're capitalist winners, yada, yada, yada. But what's changing is they now see liberals, billionaires as a threat, you know, with their avocados and their quinoa and their, you know, general <laughs> liberal social mores. This is a class of people that as they get increasingly political, we're seeing something that we didn't expect to see, which is conservatives who are concerned about philanthropy and concerned about the ultra-rich playing in politics. And for a long time, you know, Republicans have called for things like looser campaign finance restrictions so that wealthier people can play more in politics. They've encouraged wealthy people to give to charity and avoid the aforementioned tax day. 
Now we're seeing a kind of a backlash to the right where suddenly philanthropy and political spending aren't quite so in vogue. And I'm glad you brought up the Romney era because it feels like the donor wars have been flipped on their head in terms of which side is which. So in the previous decades to now, um, the Republican Party had these boogeyman donors like the Koch brothers, Romney, you know, one of his calling cards like George W. Bush was I can raise a ton of money from big donors all over the country and that can help finance my campaign and I can, you know, beat the other team. In the Trump era, that's sort of flipped a little bit because so many Hmm. Republicans who are now culture warriors are raising a lot of small dollars on the internet. uh, And Trump was a good example of that. And then you have on the left, you know, those were the people who used to rage at the Koch brothers and rage at Sheldon Adelson and rage at all the big donors and the dark money that controlled Mitch McConnell and all the levers of the GOP. You know, now they have this group of supportive progressive donors. Many of them come from the tech world. And so sort of flipped on its head a little bit. And, you know, just to unpack what the dynamic is, tell us about this trip to Orlando you took last week, which was called, what was it called? It's organized by American Philanthropic, which is like a center-right conservative Christian consulting firm. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, cool. I uh, love to hear a consulting, Christian consulting firm. Love that. Um, you were sort of face-to-face and hobnobbing with some of these conservatives who are concerned about the left. What were they saying about the big donors and the Democratic Party? And what are they planning to do about it? So what they're saying is that maybe philanthropy isn't as attractive as they maybe thought 10 or 20 years ago. You know, the the, the keynote speaker at this conference was Ben Sass, And, you know, he kind of gave the standard party line language about, you know, charity and the beauties of civic virtue and the beauties of the church, which is a huge part, obviously, of the conservative philanthropic establishment. I still say in general, most of the Republican Party is still, quote unquote, pro-philanthropy. But what we're seeing is the beginning rumblings of the backlash. Wealthy people who are talking about why is it that these big donors get so much privacy, for instance, when it comes to their charitable contributions? Donor privacy is a huge part of kind of the conservative gospel when it comes to to wealth. Maybe Republicans are saying, wait, if our donors are secretive, that means the left's donors are secretive. And maybe we need less donor privacy. That is total sea change in kind of conservative rhetoric. We're also seeing more and more calls for disclosure in political spending that, hey, you know, the left has sort of leapfrogged the right in terms of the ways they use dark money for politics. Maybe things like the Coke Network aren't so great if it also enables, you know, Mackenzie Scott and Lorene Powell Jobs and Reid Hoffman to sort of do their thing. Um, so it's totally flipped on its head. The center left and the center right sort of have an alliance here where they both want to have influence in, in politics and in philanthropy. So there sort of is, a you know, an elite cabal here where they both want to play the game. The real alliance, I think, is on the extremes of both parties, right, in the populist wings of the left and the right. And it's it's funny because the populist left, people like AOC or Elizabeth Warren, they're against big donors because they're rich, right? They go after rich donors in very caustic ways. And then populists on the right aren't necessarily going after them for being rich. They're just going at after them for being, you know, quote unquote, wokes. I think a good example of, of this is J.D. Vance, who in a totally ironic uh, part of the story is obviously that J.D. Vance is supported by Peter Thiel, uh, one of these kind of rich mega donors. But J.D. Vance, for instance, has been talking for the last several months, maybe a year or so, about 
big endowments at places like Harvard and Yale and Princeton, which are tax exempt. And, you know, obviously going after Harvard and, you know, elite Ivy League schools is, is catnip for the right. But Tucker Carlson and, and J.D. Vance and sort of the populist right have been questioning very loudly, like, why are these places tax exempt? Why can liberal donors, you know, make big contributions to their alma maters and then leaving out Main Street to dry? That is an issue that I do not think was on the conservative circuit before the populist right sort of rose up in backlash to rich people. You write in your piece that there were rumblings at this conference in Orlando about whether conservatives should fight to strip away the charitable deduction for mega donors. And it's like, okay, but like, is Mitch McConnell and like American Crossroads and Grover Norquist and Carl Rove, like, is that something they'd be cool with? Like, no, you know, they want to still maintain, that would be like, that would just be mutual disarmament and liberals sure can give to Harvard and Yale and whatever endowment they want. But, you know, as much as those places incubate liberal thinking, they're not like putting together a 527 or a 501c4 to like interfere in a Senate primary. You know, that's sort of like a fake boogeyman. I think the Overton window is shifting a little bit on the right where suddenly you don't have to kind of preach that the wealthy are, you know, God's great gift to earth on the right. So you can talk about donor power as a negative in conservative circles. And yes, like maybe, you know, the the charitable deduction for, you know, mega donors isn't going away anytime soon. I would predict that it's not. But ultimately, the wealthy are under attack now from both the far left and the far right. And it makes me think that something's got to give here. There's clearly going to be a populist critique of philanthropy that's going to yield something at some point. Yeah, the idea of campaign finance reform to keep, you know, quote unquote, soft money, whatever that means out of politics. It certainly had an appeal on the left in recent years, but it, like no one's ever framed it in a, in a really appealing populist way. And I don't understand why. Uh, mm. Like, I feel like it should have more punch with people or is it just too much of a esoteric topic for your everyday voter? I mean, it's, yeah, it's funny. I was, I was at a bodega over the weekend and, you know, the uh, the shopkeeper was really talking about C4s as a threat to democracy. And um, it was a real, a real, a real, who would have thunk it? No, um, obviously this is not something that regular people will care about. But look, I mean, I guess the counterargument, Peter, would be someone like Bernie Sanders, right? Who has, who has, yeah. who has talked about this issue in a way that, that has animated young people, right? Where they just do not see sort of this uh, elite-led America where, you know, the Chamber of Commerce and the Business Roundtable and Mitt Romney and even Barack Obama sort of uh, help control and steer American society in a centristy neoliberal direction. They don't see that kind of policy consensus as good for the society they want to build. So look, I mean, radical change happens very quietly and then overnight. And my, my, you know, the bodega owner in South Florida was not actually, not actually concerned about the super PAC incursions <laughs> into American life. I figured as much. But Teddy, that is why we like you, uh, because you are wired into the corridors of power and you tap into some interesting trends and thoughts that influence politics later on. And that's very California of you. So Thank you. we you appreciate know, that. Vanguard society right here. I'm back. I'm back from Florida. I really just have a new appreciation for what makes California so different. Thank you, Teddy. We'll see you soon. You bet.
Welcome back, everyone. Now let's take a quick minute to see what's going on with Bill Cohan on his beat right now. Hey, thank you, Peter. Uh, nice to be back here again with you. Look, so this is um, uh, quite quite a development, obviously, uh, regarding Elon Musk's offer to take Twitter private. It's essentially now a hostile deal, but of course, uh, every hostile deal, if it's successful, turns friendly. So now it's up to the Twitter board. They're in a very difficult position. Uh, you know, one thing I talked about in my a piece on Wednesday was, you know, that the Twitter board needed to act immediately to begin to put in various defenses that they don't have. It might now already be too late to put in a poison pill. Uh, it's too late to try to stagger the boards or to create any kind of dual uh, stock ownership. Uh, so what does the uh, Twitter board do at the moment? Well, I mean, obviously uh, Musk's uh, offer I think is serious. Some people aren't taking it seriously. I think it's uh, serious. I think it's quite different than, you know, you know, 420 funding secured when he pretended to take Twitter private. He's hired Morgan Stanley. He's made the requisite filings. Uh, yes, of course, the offer is uh, subject to financing. Yes, of course, the offer is subject to due diligence. Yes, of course, the offer is uh, subject to contractual agreement, of course, like every other offer that's ever made. He can get the financing. He can get this deal done. What I'm seeing uh, in the way the stock is trading is that the market is saying, this is it. It's $54.20. Uh, he said he's not going to raise it. This is his final and best offer. I think the market is actually believing him there. And I think it's also clear that there's no other bidder here. Uh, there's no other corporate bidder. Uh, there's no anything else in the works. And that this is probably the best deal that Twitter shareholders are likely to get in anything like the near term. And so the Twitter board could, of course, just say no. And if they do, and he you know doesn't raise the bid or slap a tender offer in the paper to take the matter directly to shareholders. If he just decides to go away and then sells his stock, well, then the stock will go back to $35 a share, maybe $30 a share. And then this Twitter board will have a lot of explaining to do and a lot of pressure on it to get the stock back anywhere up to anything like $54 and 20 cents a share. So they're in a very, a difficult situation, which of course makes it a lot of fun and very interesting. And so I think if I were the Twitter board, I would certainly hire the right lawyers, as I suggested, Marty Lipton or somebody at Wachtell. I would hire a banker to, of course, canvas the marketplace and see if there's another bid out there from a different kind of uh, company, a friendlier kind of company than Elon Musk is likely to be towards Twitter. But I think that's going to be a pretty short process, and there aren't there's really nobody out there. If it's not forty three billion, it'll be end up being forty five billion or more. Uh, that's a lot of money for a company. I mean, Apple doesn't need this headache. Google doesn't need this headache. If you want to see a real revolution, you know, you have Facebook try to uh, put in a bid for Twitter. Then I think everyone will go berserk. So, you know, I just don't see anybody wanting to compete with the world's richest man here. And then the question becomes for Elon Musk, whether he follows through on any of the things that he's talked about wanting to do with Twitter. I mean, if he 
kills the advertising, if he brings back Trump, uh, if he makes it a right-wing echo chamber, then he's going to lose you know, one-half to two-thirds of the audience. And if he loses those people, then Twitter becomes nothing, and he's the king of nothing, and he will have spent you know, $43 billion for nothing, which won't change his lifestyle, but it'll go down in history as like a $43 billion blunder nonetheless, but it won't affect him one way or the other. So I suspect he'll tread a lot more lightly than he's talked about treading so far. And I think he'll try to preserve much of what makes Twitter sort of both something we can't resist and something we hate. So, uh, Peter, that's pretty much my thoughts right now. We'll keep you posted. Uh, I'm sure uh, I look forward to coming back and talking about uh, how this fast-changing situation develops in the next uh, few hours, the next few days. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear on this podcast, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. You can visit us at puck.news and on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you next week. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.